What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Francis Ngannou, the UFC heavyweight champion of the world. Francis has one of the most inspiring stories in professional sports. He grew up in a small village in Cameroon, started physical labor at the age of 10, and eventually went on a 14-month journey to Europe in search of freedom and prosperity. In this conversation, we discuss his journey from Cameroon to Paris, sacrificing $10 million for freedom, why he is being paid in Bitcoin, the percentage chance that he fights Tyson Fury, and more. This was one of my favorite episodes, and I hope you enjoy it. But first, let's run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone and automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity and recovery levels in your app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals can change over the course of the day depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or are wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. Whoop is offering 15% off their all-new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8sleep. 8sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer and nature's best medicine. Consistent good sleep can help reduce the likelihood of serious health issues, yet still more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep and temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep. For me, I was never able to get a good night's sleep because I was always too hot, but now I am falling asleep in record time, faster than I ever have before, all thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can add the cover to any mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. The result? 8sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. The Pod Pro cover by 8sleep is so popular that it has garnered attention from CEOs, high performers such as Olympic gold medalist Red Gerard, and top CrossFit athletes, including 2021 fittest man on earth, Justin Medoros, and UFC heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou. They're all powered by 8sleep to make the most of their workouts and recovery. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer. Go to 8sleep.com slash Joe to check out the Pod Pro cover and save $150 at checkout. 8sleep ships to the USA, Canada, and UK. Next up is Underdog Fantasy. If you're looking to get some action on the big game this Sunday, Underdog Pick'em Game is the easiest place to start. Plus, Underdog is offering a special line in their Pick'em Lobby for everyone this Sunday. Joe Burrow, over under one, yes one, passing yard. Pair Joe Burrow's over one passing yard with one other correct over under pick from the Rams, and you can turn $25 into $75 in a single super game. Sign up with code POMP, P-O-M-P, 
and Underdog will double your initial deposit with up to $100 in bonus cash. That's Underdog Fantasy, promo code POMP, P-O-M-P. That's Underdog Fantasy, promo code POMP. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. What's up, everyone? I am here joined today by Francis Nganu. He needs no introduction, but I will do it anyways. The UFC heavyweight champion of the world. Francis, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good, Joe. And yourself? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We're about a week uh, so, out from the title defense now. How are you feeling? I feel pretty good. Happy. Very relieved from the pressure of that fight because it was just too much getting into that fight. Yeah. I want to talk about the fight. I want to talk about kind of everything that went into it and what might be next. But if you're okay with it, I would love to start in kind of your backstory. I've read a lot about it. I know you've done some interviews in the past. I think it's one of the most inspiring stories in professional sports today, to be quite honest. And I would love for the audience to hear more about it. So you're from a a small town in Cameroon, and you eventually traveled to Paris and made your way there after a long journey. Can you just talk a little bit about your childhood growing up and why you decided ultimately to do that? I was born in Cameroon in a very poor family by the age of six. Yes, I was six when my parents divorced and I started to like live with different family, you know, move on different places because they were in the court for the custody and stuff, even though they didn't have money. So they kind of like, they didn't really deserve that luxury because going to the court for a custody wasn't a good thing for the people of their rank. So what's happened is like I went to my aunt and at that time started to hear people talk about my dad, who was very disappointing for me because my dad was my hero. So they were talking about his reputation and everything, how violent he is. And therefore, like by that time, I already love everything related with power. Wasn't having fun playing soccer with other kids wanted to replicate what we watch on movie and all those stuff, and they didn't like it. For them, it was too violent. So on top of my dad reputation, and then I love everything that people consider that violence it wasn't easy for me, but I didn't want to have my dad reputation. But although I still love everything related with power, such as combat sport, and didn't have any opportunity you know, I went back in the village. I was nine years old. By that time, my older brother and I, we have to like start work today to help provide at home because we were living with our grandma, with our brother and sisters. So we were the oldest one. I was nine and he was 11. So we had to like go out there, work, expecting people to like pay us or like there wasn't really paying us at that time, but trying to get help from people in return or from what we are doing to them. And then uh, with time goes by struggling like that until I think I went to middle school. It's always been the same scenario that I was like, had to work and then get to school, get frustrated, get embarrassed in front of other kids because of my situation, because of not having a notebook or a pen to take a note or haven't paid a scholar fee, even though I've been working the whole summer break or holidays, even the weekend. So I get to the point that I really get frustrated about that situation. I had enough of being embarrassed in front of other kids. So I make a a promise that I'm going to change that and change the way that other kids look at me. But in order to do that, 
it wasn't enough to be doing normal stuff anymore because I was already like labeled as a kid that is beneath others, you know. So I really need to do something very outstanding to regain my reputation or my status, you know, to be noticed, to prove them wrong. Was like, hey guys, I'm here too. I deserve to be here too. I'm just like you. Maybe even better because the least that I have, even though it's not enough, I earned it. I know the value of it. I work to have it. Unfortunately, it's not enough, but at least I know the value of it, you know. Then I think that's when I really decided to like do something that is going to be outstanding. And I came across boxing, who was the only thing at that time who combined my reputation and my passion together. You know, like I'm going to be doing this, but not having a bad reputation as my dad. And then I'm going to prove those who look at me like I'm not deserving that they are wrong. So I was about 13 years old. But problem of thinking like that at that time, there wasn't anything around as a gym for 100 miles radius. And even if there were, I couldn't afford it. The least time that I had was to go out there trying to earn something, to trying to get something, whether it's like to work, to get a pen or a book or to feed myself or to... And Francis, when you say work, what are you doing for work at this point? Shoveling sand, dig sand, loading truck, everything. Because at that time I was 13 years old and I'd been working in the sand quarry for like four years. I was a very experienced and I was bigger than 13 years old kids. I was very strong. That was an adult job. But by that time I was doing almost as equal as all the adult. I was a legit employer. So you're, you're nine or 10 years old. You start working in the sand, you're loading trucks, you're doing all these different things. You're doing essentially, like you just said, the work of a grown man at this point at 12, 13 years old and so forth. At what age do you decide that you're going to try to make it to Paris and to France and try to find a boxing gym? I left school. I was 17. Then I stay in this village, like trying to go to city, then come back again. Then at 22, I think it was the moment that I have the click like, okay, now is the time. I'm not just watching my life pass by. I'm not just surviving. I'm going to take action to chase my dream. Then I left the village to go in the city to find a gym to do boxing. Since the beginning, he was very clear that I want to be a world champion, you know. So that's kind of like put a lot of pressure on me. And he wasn't easy in the beginning, but I went there, started do boxing in Douala. Even though people were discouraging me, nobody really believed in that. And they were right. Because from that position, it was really tough to believe that something could happen, that you can have a change. But I was just so stubborn, believe in it so much. I knew the reality, though. I was realistic. I knew that I won't make it in Cameroon. So I'm like, let's practice and then find a way out. Even though I couldn't even afford a visa or something, but I knew that I can succeed in Cameroon. I didn't have enough opportunity there. So... Once I decided to move on, and that was like four years after, to find a place that I'm going to have more opportunity. And that's how I left Cameroon. And that was in 2012. Just grab my bag and leave. And didn't know exactly where I was going. I was going somewhere in Europe. I know I'm going to go country to country, from Cameroon to Nigeria, from Nigeria to Niger, Niger to Algeria, 
from Algeria to Morocco, then get to Morocco. The biggest deal was to get from Morocco to Spain because Spain is Europe and they're kind of like really protective of their border. Yeah, that was the hardest part. It took me like one year to make it from Morocco to Spain. So you take, it takes a year, you pick up your bag and you leave because there's no opportunity in your mind to make it in Cameroon to do what you want to achieve your dream. So you say, I'm going to take my bag, I'm going to leave, I'm going to head to Europe. That journey takes about a year. Yeah, 14 months. 14 months, so a little over a year. My understanding is that that was not an easy journey by any means, right? It takes 14 months. No at all. It was a hell of a journey, basically the part of Morocco to Spain, because like, you know, they concentrate all the security power in Europe in that side because they are protecting their border uh, from Africans. They don't want Africans to come there. So the European Union literally like financed the security over there, both sides, whether it's in the Morocco side or in the Spain side. So they kind of like to protect the border from those two continents. So how did you end up actually getting across to Spain? Well, we just try over and over in the ocean you know, until one day they miss you in between, I don't know, like fisher boat or something. And then you get rescued by the Red Cross who has a headquarter in the Spain side. And then they bring you there and then call the Homeland Security, the border police who come, takes you and bring you to the police station. And they kind of like charge you for like entering, illegally entering their country. You know, that's when we went to jail. At any point, did you think that you made a mistake or were you scared? Yeah, I was scared because people die. People were dying. You didn't see somebody and next day he tried something. He's not there anymore. He's died. Yes, that was scary. I knew it wasn't like the smartest decision, but I didn't have many options. And you are in the point in your life that you kind of like tell yourself, like, what do I have to lose? Then you find out that, well, my life. Yeah, that sucks. But in order to change something, I need to raise something, you know, I really have to do this in order to change the route of my family or my future family or everything. I need to take those risks, you know, and you just cross your finger that you will get past that, you will get through that. But you see how bad it goes for some people, but you see, just can't turn around, give up like that. You have to keep going. So you eventually get to Spain, as you said, you get arrested and you get released within Spain and then you move from Spain to Paris is my understanding. And yeah. I don't want to make it sound like everything was good from there because you were still searching for food, searching for a place to live, all these different things. And I wasn't, I wasn't even going to Paris. I was going to Germany because I wanted to go to England. My whole journey was in order to like find a place that I'm going to have a boxing opportunity. It was clear for me that it was the UK at that time. In Europe, the best place was the UK. But, you know, uh, they kind of like have their own border again. So even though you're in Europe, you still have to cross that border, which is like very difficult as well. And I was kind of like tired though. So I decided to like lay low, find some place else. And the only place that by that time was the perfect fit for me was Germany. Because the Klitschko brother that time was there boxing and the heavyweight boxing was very big in uh, Germany. Then I decided I was going to Germany. Then for some reason, I stopped in Paris and then things happened. You know, next day I found a boxing gym and then I met a guy there, Didier Carmont. He were very friendly. And then 
you know, kind of like Paris was, I have a little warmness there, even though I was in the street, things happen. That's how I stay in Paris. So you obviously take a very long journey, a very tough journey, 14 months in total, arrested, all these different things, going through the desert, crossing the sea, all these different things. Why did you ultimately decide to give up on boxing and go towards MMA? Was it just the opportunity at the time? No, I never decided to give up the boxing. When I went to this boxing gym, and then uh, I met this guy, Didier Carmo, and he said he's going to talk to the general manager of the gym and see if they can grant my access to the gym for free because I'm like, I do not have no money, but I want to become a world champion. Yeah, and he was very nice, was there supporting, pleading for me. And then I get granted to the gym. So I was coming to train. And after a few weeks, he told me, like, I think you have skills, you have a potential. But I do believe that the better thing for you now regarding your situation, you can be good in this sport, which is like upcoming and is very great, which is MMA. That's the moment that I'm like, what is MMA? He started to educate me about MMA. I'm like, no, bro, I don't want that. I want, you know, the straight boxing, like the Mike Tyson one. You know what I mean? And over time, he'd been having this conversation because he was very around, like supporting me, taking me out with friends and pay for my own, do everything to make me feel comfortable, to make me feel happy. I remember I even have some old phone that I bought in Spain when I get in Spain. People started make fun on me about my phone because they didn't even know my real situation. Most people in the gym didn't know that I was even homeless. So he would give me a brand new phone, give me stuff. I really get comfortable there. He even gave me an apartment, my first apartment in Paris. He gave me that apartment. And he was still there all the time, like talking about, yeah, you know, but regardless, I know you don't want to do MMA, but I think this be something good for you until like maybe two months after then the gym supposed to close and by that time i was going to this association named la shoba next to this association there was a gym named crossfight since my gym had to close for one month i decided to check in that gym if they are doing boxing so i talked to the general manager of the association and he told me like, oh, we have a good relationship as a neighbor. I, I think I can lead for you. It will be better. I'm like, that's a good idea. Go ahead. So that's how he went to this gym and talked to a guy there with named friend. He was a part owner of the gym at the time. And then I get granted to a cross fight. And then from there, I met Fernand, who was the head coach from the gym at that time, because the gym was a cross fight who became MMA factory. Yep. I think it was two years or one years and a half after that. I don't want to skip over kind of everything that happened after that because there's obviously a lot of history here. Yeah. But we have limited time to talk today, right? So at some point you get to the UFC. I think you got in the UFC towards your late 20s, maybe your 29th birthday, I think, or something around there. You win a bunch of fights. You get a title opportunity. You lose. You eventually become the champion though, right? So you're the yeah. champion going into this past weekend. For people who are fans of MMA and the UFC, they know a bunch of this stuff. But for people who aren't, you've been going through a situation with a contract where you feel some things are unfair. The UFC is arguing the opposite, and there's been a dispute. Going into this fight, you've been dealing with that for a long period of time now, going back and forth, and you're fighting. You were paid, I think it's publicly known at this point, and was reported that it was $600,000 for the fight last week. You fight Surreal Gone. You used to train at the same gym as him. He's a former teammate under your old coach. 
you were hurt going into this fight. Why I'm saying all this is because in my mind, you had a lot to lose, right? You were negotiating a new contract. You were going up against someone that you knew previously and had trained with. You had an injury. You had a lot to lose. As someone who went through all of this to get there, why did you continue with the fight? Why did you go through and why did you actually fight him injured? Because I don't give back, brother. As opposed to some time, I didn't have to lose my life. I have to deal with a situation that I have even my life to lose and I never back down. So why wouldn't I back down in this situation? Yes, I do have something to lose, but I have my dignity to win, to reinstate. I have my pride. I'm doing this. I signed up for this. I agree for this. I'm doing it regardless. And it doesn't matter what the outcome. Obviously, he played out pretty good for me, but he could have go other side. I would have still be happy because that was my decision. And I, I knew that I gave everything. I did everything that I could have done to make it right, to win the fight. Therefore, I wouldn't have any regret. That's just part of life. People deal with stuff. People have challenge all the time, but that's not an excuse to back down what you have to do. Unless I feel like I can really, yes, I was hurt, but I do feel like something was possible to do out there. And this sport is more mentally than physically. Obviously, he always good to have everything together to be 100%. But if not, you kind of like trying to find your way out with what you have. You play the game with what you have in your hand. So I've heard you talk a lot about the difference between fighting for money and freedom. And I've heard you say that you got to give up one for the other. And in your case, you've been very vocal that you do not feel that the UFC contracts are fair that you're an independent contractor, but you don't get health insurance. You're not allowed to go do other things outside of the UFC. You're contractually obligated once you sign that contract to fight for them under the amount that you previously agreed to. So in your mind, like, how does this improve? What does the UFC need to do to improve these deals? I'm assuming you think that they have most of the leverage in this situation. Most people find it hard to believe that UFC fighters would organize together and join a union. The UFC is a $10 billion company. Obviously, it's difficult, but from someone in your position, the heavyweight champion of the world, how do you fix this? How do you change this? <laughs> I don't think my position would do shit in this situation because, as you just said, they are a $10 billion company. What are we, fighter? We are nothing. Individually, we are nothing. We might be 600, 700 fighters in the roster, but we are divided in that amount of power. So meaning we are nothing. They make sure to divide us pretty good to conquer. So yeah, you're going to be in your position and everyone here want to provide for his family. People have a loan in their house. People have debt. People go through a lot of shit. So when they see an opportunity to get money, even though they know that it's unfair, they don't think about it so much. They just want to take that. You can just think when you're settled. But when you're not, when you're not secure, you do whatever he takes. It's very hard. But for my opinion, what I think is very best to do and that the UFC should do, I think at this point, even that they've been talking about this situation, they should come down, show a good faith, and even help to fight her to make a union because fight her on their own, believe me, they will never do it. Because with time goes by, the company just gets bigger and fighter just gets smaller. Money that fighter was getting five years ago, you might think they are still having the same money today. 
They are not 10,000 five years ago. It's not 10,000 today anymore. The inflation, inflation yeah. the inflation make that money smaller. So you used to fight for 10,000 back in the day and you could have done a lot of things with it. Your rent went up. Everything went up. Gas went up. Everything went up. So you can use the same 10,000 for the same thing. So technically the company is getting bigger. The fighter is getting smaller. It's not changing. So there is like a big gap in the power here. Fighter cannot do anything. Wherever you are, you cannot do anything. Unless like the UFC at some point think like, okay, we have to make this fair. We have to like show a good faith and show that we are doing things right. We are not just taking advantage on them. And then like contribute to build some things like a union, something we will advocate for a fighter to fight for fighter because fighter is by himself can fight on his own. He has no power here to talk. Like there's a lot of fighter who just doesn't even want to hear you like stand by you when you're talking about UFC because I'm like, oh, I might get in trouble. I might get caught because he has a loan. He has this. He needs his next purse. You can blame him for that. You know, that just Have like- Have fighters it, supported it, you privately, but not publicly? I'm assuming there's fighters that tell you, we appreciate this, but do not do it publicly. Of course, some just walk around and just say it in your ear and just walk by. Like they don't want nobody to even see that they talk to you. I understand that situation. I really understand because yes, it's not fair, but that's the only thing that they have. So what are we going to do in this situation? Like we can fight this. We can fight this. Francis, I want to read you a stat here and see what your thoughts are on it. So we have four major professional sports leagues here in the United States outside of kind of combat sports, right? So we have the NFL, the MLB, the NBA, and the NHL, football, basketball, baseball, and hockey. This is the percentage of revenue that each of those sports leagues pay their players, right? So you take all the players, and this is the percentage of total revenue, of total money that the leagues bring in that they pay their players. The MLB pays their players 54% of total revenue. The NBA pays their players 50% of total revenue. The NHL pays their players 50% of total revenue. And the NFL pays their players 48% of total revenue. What do you think that number is for the UFC? Oh, we all know. <laughs> it's 16%. Yeah, 16%. That's 16% if you take out the part that some big fighter are taking, some fighter are getting paid and order. It's just like on the card, you might be even less. If you go yep. card by card, you will find out that more often they are going a lot less than that 16%. So you talked about inflation for a little bit there. And I think you did something really interesting for this last fight, which was you took 50% of your purse, the $600,000 that I mentioned earlier, in Bitcoin. You did a partnership with Cash App where you teamed up with them and you got paid that 50% in Bitcoin. When did you first hear about Bitcoin? What are your thoughts on it? And like, why did you ultimately decide to get paid in Bitcoin? I've been hearing about Bitcoin a few years ago, but not until last year that my manager brought that idea to me, basically with the NFT. Let me be honest. I didn't understand shit about it. I'm like, what the hell is that? Then I'm like, bro, trust us. We're going to do this right. You're going to see how it played out. And at the end, it was very interesting, the NFT stuff. And then when I started to follow like the Bitcoin, Ethereum, the crypto market in general, it was very interesting. Then I realized like it's even a better bank because like not only my money is not getting inflected, but it's like very decentralized. Nobody is controlling my money and telling me what to do and when I don't need permission from anybody to do my thing. So I kind of like started to get educated about that in the past year, get into 
And I found it very interesting. And I really believe that is going to be the future, you know, for the economy and everything. And like at this point, you can see that there is a lot of people that kind of like accepted Bitcoin already, even though it's kind of down now, but it's a very good currency. A lot of people from a diverse demographic, people have made a lot of money, have been wealthy because of Bitcoin. Just because nobody can control it. They don't need somebody to approve it. They don't need a bank general manager to sign some paper or something looking up to their credit score or all the blah, blah, blah. You're not getting your money inflated, brother. Yeah, <laughs> That's the way to go. So that's why I put my saving now, avoiding inflation. Because when I put my money in the bank, 100000 by this time next year, that 100000 don't have the same value because what I could have done with 100,000 one years ago, I can't do it anymore. I might need 110 or 120,000 now. So this is the problem. Yeah, you understand. And I, I talk about this all the time, but especially here in America, people aren't as in tune with it. You come from a country and a region that deals with large amounts of inflation at certain points and periods of time. People are underbanked. They don't have access to bank accounts. They don't have access to savings. They can't invest. They can't do these certain things. So I think it makes sense that this is stuff that's only going to get bigger, especially when it comes to countries outside of America, right? But Yeah, definitely. Like when you go to Africa, a lot of people don't have bank account in Africa. Before I left Africa, I never had a bank account. I never even think about to go to a bank to open a bank account because that belongs to somebody. You need all those paperwork. You need all those approval. You need this. You need that. But, bro, by this time, I have heard my family set up their Bitcoin address, their wallet. A lot of them, you know, like, hey, bro, just open this, just do this. This is the thing. Put your money here, do this. And they do believe me. They get that settled, you know. They get some Bitcoin or get their wallet. And they can even, like, use their money, transfer, send something over without need to explain to a bank why and without paying a fee to somebody and all those stuff, you know. That's the other thing that people don't realize is if you were to transfer money back home to people back home, usually you would have to pay a very large fee and it would take a long period of time to get there in some instances. And with Bitcoin, you can do it near instantaneous for free. And the, and the exchange rate is ridiculous sometimes. Yeah. The exchange rate can be very ridiculous sometimes. With Bitcoin, you don't need those stuff anymore. You know, you're just out of trouble. It's pretty easy. And not to mention like those people sometimes back home, they don't have bank account, but everyone has a smartphone, has access in internet. That's the good thing about it. So why don't they just open their own bank account in their phone that they don't need to go to the bank for approval or for anything? So when I told people that we were going to do this interview, a lot of people asked me to ask you about the NFT necklace that you wore before the fight. Why did you do that and how did that happen? It was about my manager investigate me to that. Dapper Lab get a collaboration with the UFC. So they make this UFC strike, which is like a platform that you can find a UFC NFT, UFC moment that you can own, your own special moment that you want to buy and own it. They also have this jewelry, these artists who kind of like custom it and put your NFT in the chain and you can all the time wash it. It's a gold chain with diamond and the video inside is like, keep playing, this is amazing. But that was like about the Dapper Lab collaboration with the UFC for the yep. UFC strike because yeah. they are going to have a UFC NFT. Gotcha. Which is, which, which is something that my manager talking to the UFC 
for quite a while because we've been talking about contract for a long time. That one of the things that he was putting in the contract was like my right for the NFT. And then I'm like, what is NFT? So I'm like, yes, before you find out, we just want a right for that. Whenever you do it, we want our own right for that. Unfortunately, this contract never come to a term, but yeah. I got a couple more questions, then I'll let you go. Over the course of the last, you know, however many months or years, you've obviously been presented with a number of other deals. And like you said before, there have been contract talks before, but nothing worked out. You fought your last fight in the contract, and now you're going to heal up for a period of time, and we'll see what happens over the next year. But how much money do you think that you've left on the table over the last, we'll call it year or two years? And why did you ultimately end up doing that? Conservatively, I would say just from the past two fights, I would say seven million. But if you go a little back than that, I'll be close to 10 million. But once again, I'm being conservative here. As I said, freedom and free, whether you want something or you want another one, you can fight for freedom and for money at the same time. You know, you have to like sacrifice one in order to have another. I never have that amount of money, not, not even close, but still, I think for what I want, that doesn't worth what I want. Francis, this is one of the most impressive things to me about you is that after everything you've been through, right, everything you've gone through to get to this point, uh, you sit here and you say, I gave up conservatively at least $10 million over whatever period of time, but it was worth it to me because of the freedom, right? And I think most people in certain circumstances, even people that live good, comfortable lives would say that's crazy. And someone coming from your, your story still values that freedom. Do you think that what you went through ultimately made you value that freedom more? No, that's definitely crazy. If you know a little bit about my story of like working, I mean, I always a rebel about freedom. I work in my uncle son mine and I have to be a rebel and he didn't understand why his nephew was the one that was the rebel. I'm like, it's not just fair, you know, <laughs> because... I just like things to be fair. That also comes with a cost to be able to speak for yourself. Obviously, you, I signed those contracts. Yes, I had kind of like some sort of obligation to fulfill that. But I just think that it's not setting me free. I'm giving away my freedom in order to have that money. And I'd rather be free without money than have money and be in a cage. I like it. There's principles there for sure. All right, I got two more for you, and then I'll let you go. If you had to place a percentage, maybe percentage isn't the right word, but if you had to say how likely it is that you would fight Tyson Fury in the future in boxing, how likely do you think that is? How likely do I think it will happen, or how likely do you think I want it to happen? I think you want it to happen, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. how likely do you think it will happen? How likely? 90%. Yeah. You think 90% chance that you do box Tyson Fury? Yeah. And what makes you so comfortable with that number? Because I know he won that fight. I won that fight. I will do whatever it takes to have that fight. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that for sure. All right. Lastly, so I'm friends with the people that own Eight Sleep mattresses, the yeah. thermoregulated pod, which I heard you sleep on. How do you like it? I like it. It's cool. I can make my bed cooler. I can make my bed warm depending on how I feel. You know, I like to sleep when the bed is cold, but sometimes you put the AC, but on your mattress is still hot because you're laying on because of your body temperature. But you can set this A sleep mattress so you get the mattress cooler. You kind of like 
able to like set your own temperature. You set even an alarm on it. So it vibrated in your time. You can also set it to like certain time that it started to get colder at certain temperature and all those stuff. Pretty cool. Yeah, I am a big fan. I tell everyone I know about it. The ability to cool down is amazing. But all right, Francis, I will let you go. I appreciate you so much for sitting down today and doing this. I hope your knee heals up comfortably and I hope to see you back, whether it's boxing or whether it's in the UFC, I hope to see you back in action as soon as possible. But thanks again for doing this. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.